We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentators Ross Feingold. Good evening. And Yuan Ming Chao. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a South China Sea Agreement minus Taiwan, some controversial proposals for judicial reform, a visit by former US Vice President Dick Cheney, the awkward use of the words Chinese Taipei, and an alleged conspiracy to exert pressure on a former head of state. But we'll begin with a red light, that being the one issued by Thai Power on Monday of this week due to lessening power supplies. Now, operating reserves dropped to a low of 624,000 kilowatts on Tuesday, a day after the red light indicator was first issued, as electricity demand surged to a high of 36.26 gigawatts at 1.54 p.m., when the mercury here in Taipei rose to a very, very hot 37 degrees. Now, Tuesday's operating reserve figure was the second lowest ever recorded by the state generator Thai Power, behind only the 564,000 kilowatts, which was seen on May the 31st of last year. Thai Power revised its national supply indicator for red to orange Wednesday afternoon, after the island's power supply situation eased somewhat due to generators at several power plants being brought online and being connected to the national grid. A red light is one above a black alert that shows reserves have fallen to less than 500,000 kilowatts watts, making power rationing necessary. Now, we've obviously talked quite a bit about government energy policy a lot over the past couple of years, but does the red light warning signal a sense of urgency that somebody needs to address this situation? Well, as much as a sense of urgency would be helpful, uh, I think also a sense of honesty and and, uh, seriousness and seeing government officials or the people from Thai Power uh, giving the public and industry uh, a level of transparency and a level of confidence that they could get the job done. I'm sure they're working as hard as possible to uh, address the situation and provide sufficient energy. But as we often see with a lot of different uh, urgent situations that require government action, uh, sometimes the action doesn't come as quickly and the answers don't come as quickly as the public expects. And and that just makes it easy for the media or for opposition politicians to criticize and also leaves doubts in the public or industry's mind about whether or not the electrical, electricity power needs are going to be met. So, uh, uh, definitely urgency, but also a sense of seriousness and I think transparency and clarity uh, as to what the real situation is. And, and uh, coming up with things like, well, let's turn down the aircon in government-owned companies or uh, government offices during the, the midday, that is, by itself is just not an action that inspires confidence. Well, I agree with Ross. Um, there needs to be political will about energy prices in Taiwan. Um, but also, if we look at, uh, if, you, if we talk about seriousness, um, the government's uh, plan to bring renewables and to phase out nuclear power, there doesn't seem to be a very uh, coherent and comprehensive way of bringing these two things together uh, realistically. I mean, if we take away um, the nuke power um, by 2025, that's 18% of uh, power generation gone. And in the next decade, uh, power consumption is going to rise by perhaps an estimated 14%. So we're looking at an energy deficit of about 32%. And are we going to get those renewables up to that level by that time? I think the government has to be realistic about this and, and inform the citizens, e- even if it 
lose his face doing so. You know, we we might have to you know reverse some of our promises because、um, we don't want to see brownouts and blackouts here. Yeah. Right, and of course, there was calls this week by certain new, at least one newspaper. The China Times ran a poll that said that more than fifty percent of the respondents to that poll argued that the government should either turn on some suspended reactors at the number one and number two nuclear power plants, and possibly even take action to start the fourth nuclear power plant. Well, the government has made it clear, and the DPP as a party,、uh, when they were in opposition during the Ma administration, made it clear what their policy on nuclear power is, and they certainly will,、uh, have not changed that policy. And they've made it clear in in, in recent days.、Uh, I I personally think that、uh, nuclear should be part of Taiwan's energy mix, but in the current situation,、uh, that is not an issue that they're going to address. What I mean is, they, amid the urgency to address the falling energy reserve this week, they're not going to make a sudden decision to. Turn、uh, back on or restart construction of, of, of any of the nuclear reactors.、Uh, so uh, that, that, again, though, as I said earlier, th- this just makes it easy. The, the lack of transparency, the uh, uh, U-turns on, on how to handle the situation, all makes it easy for media such as uh, the, the poll and, and the outlet that you cited to criticize. And, and then th- that just. Makes the situation even worse. It just makes it hard for the government、uh, to come up with some realistic policies、uh, to address the immediate situation, which is the biggest concern. Uh, so, uh, yes, nuclear ideally would be part of the mix. I don't think the government's going to change its policies today. So, even having the debate just isn't helpful. What would be helpful, as we've been discussing, is, is transparency and a sense of seriousness. I just wanted to add you know, for some comparative context. Like it took Germany twenty years to move from. Five percent renewables, twenty percent, and they had nuclear power、um, all the way until I believe two thousand ten, where they started to phase it out. We,、uh, the Tsai administration is banking on implementing five to twenty percent within eight years. I think we have to be realistic,、um, but there's also some things that you know, you know, the Tsai administration cannot uh, uh, control, such as climate change, right? And、uh, the hotter Uh, the climate gets more power consumption、uh, is going to happen, and so we're going to have to work on things from that point of view as well. And、um, Taiwan has one of the highest per capita energy consumption rates in the world. It's in the top within the top fifteen, I believe, and I think this has to be worked on. And of course, there's all. This has been happening for several years now. With Thai Power, of course, facing charges and allegations that it's actually been lying to the public about how much energy it can actually produce. Well, let's hope that they're not. If they are, no one would be surprised. And, and unfortunately, we see this、um, often with the public utilities,、um, the, whether it's water. Uh, we know that there's a lot of problems in the delivery of water. There's a lot of w- leakage, and we we probably would not be surprised if we found out that、uh, there's similar、uh, lack of again lack of transparency with what what takes place within the、uh, generation and delivery of electricity. And as we've been discussing,、uh, there needs to be more transparency, and it's going to take time to work these problems out. But some of the solutions are probably more realistic than others. And again, that nuclear might be more realistic. Than achieving the stated goals for renewables, I mean, renewables should be part of the mix. But、uh, the likelihood of achieving the, the percentage that the government has cited, as we've been discussing, is really unlikely.、Uh, so there needs to be some honesty here. And of course, you and Ming, you don't just go to a nuclear power plant and flick a switch and go, "Hey, we've got power." Yeah, 
but you also don't, you know, uh, tell civil servants to turn off their air conditioning from one to three and expect that to solve the problem either. Yeah. Right, I'm sure we'll be talking about this sooner or later, and the lights are still on here, so I guess it's okay at the moment. Anyway, let's move on. And foreign ministers from Southeast Asian countries and China adopted a negotiating framework for the code of conduct in the South China Sea this week during talks in Manila. Now, the framework sets out to advance the 2002 Declaration of Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea, an agreement which has mostly, for the most part, been ignored by claimant states. Of course, this does affect Taiwan, as the ROC lays claim to and occupies several South China Sea islands. And of course Taiwan was not at the ASEAN meeting, but the government did release a statement in which it once again reiterated sovereignty over islands claimed by the Republic of China and said that Taiwan should not be excluded from talks on a dispute resolution mechanism in the region. So Ross, Taiwan's chances of actually being involved in this dispute mechanism, zero, between zero and 100. 100 being yes, zero being no. Well, as of today, it's obviously zero because they weren't invited to the meeting. Uh, the, the, the arbitration that was decided a year ago that, that was initiated by the Philippines uh, against China and China's actions uh, was uh, you know, something that completely sidelined Taiwan other than some vague references where, where the decision struggled to even refer to Taiwan and what name to use uh, for Taiwan and, and how to refer to Taiwan's claims, especially given that China decided not to participate in the arbitration. Uh, so, so we see, unfortunately, that the stakeholders, uh, whether it's the actual claimants or other countries in the region or countries such as the United States, um, that, that is a stakeholder just by virtue of its naval presence in, in the region. Uh, our sidelining Taiwan, it's very unfortunate, but that is the reality. So we'd have to put a zero on, on your scale right now. And, and unfortunately, in the near term, it seems very unlikely to change. And, and uh, the, Taiwan just was not part of this conversation at the foreign minister's meeting in Manila last week. Yeah, uh, that's there's nothing new with that, with Taiwan being left out in these ASEAN uh, meetings. Um, I think the, the notable thing is, you know, when ASEAN came together with China to talk about this thing, um, it, they basically produced something that was entirely toothless, you know, nothing legally binding. Um, the signals and, and, you know, the fact that this was held in Manila um, – and if you remember, there was this whole legal dispute over the South China Seas. And now, you know, with the new government in the Philippines, they're basically been bought out by China. You know, they've reversed themselves 180 degrees. And this, you know, what they came uh, together to, to announce basically really just symbolizes China's power within ASEAN in the region, you know. Right, I mean, do, you, do you think these, obviously, for nationalistic, we'll call it nationalistic purposes, not a word I particularly like, but do you think these, these South China Sea territories claimed by the Republic of China or Taiwan, whatever you want to call it, are worth holding on to? Well, it's a great struggle for people in Taiwan and, and for the DPP government and, and leading officials in, in the government, starting with the president herself, because uh, this is a, a localist political party that has always had its focus on Taiwan and Penghu. Uh, so they struggle to assert the claims over the Diaoyu Tais um, and the South China Seas, uh, South China Sea Islands, which are historically associated with sovereignty claims by the Republic of China, which, as we know and your listeners know, is something that the DPP has been uh, trying to disassociate itself from, trying to disassociate modern Taiwan from. But because uh, for a variety of reasons vis-a-vis -vis China or, or other stakeholders, such as the United States, the, the Thai government continues to adhere to the 
ROC structure, which then by definition comes with this, the, the territorial parts of the ROC, and that includes the historical claims to Diaoyuta and, 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 and South China Sea Islands. Uh, I, I, actually, people in Taiwan probably don't care that much about spending money and, and actually putting people's lives at risk to defend these claims. On the other hand, though, people in any country are always reluctant to give up a piece of land that they actually hold or that uh, their leaders have historically claimed, right? There's a, a, an emotional challenge with giving up something and not getting anything in return. You made an interesting point there, Ross, of def- defending the islands with the Navy. Obviously, if, if and hopefully it will never happen, there is a conflict between Taiwan, the Republic of China, and the People's Republic of China. Obviously, these islands will play some role in that, but unfortunately, they're not very defensible, are they? Well, the supply lines are, are quite far, but... Um as you mentioned, there's a garrison of uh, Coast Guard uh, administration uh, personnel, but they're basically trained as they're basically Marines. Yeah, um, but uh, within recent uh, months, there have been uh, new installations and improvements on the island to make them more uh, easy to reinforce. Right, this is, of course, we're talking about Taiping Island. But, of course, it has been argued that if China does go to war with Taiwan, China will just bomb these islands. Well, uh, as we've been discussing, um, it it is garrisoned by a a number of Coast Guard uh, sailors, but uh, the Marines were there previously, and they were withdrawn by Chen Shui-bian, and appears not to have gotten anything in return for what at the time appeared to be an effort to de-escalate tensions. Uh, But China didn't give Taiwan anything in return, or, or the other claimants didn't give anything in return, and uh, if you want to defend your claims, you are going to have to um, not just build more more installations, but you're going to have to post more uh, uh, human assets to the island. And, and frankly, Coast Guard probably doesn't cut it. You're going to have to send uh, Marines there again. And uh, I, I don't think Taiying One actually has uh, a view towards doing that right now. Right. Anyway, let's move on. And former U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney was in Taipei this week and he held talks with President Tsai Ing-wen on Monday before attending an Asia-Pacific security forum. Now, Cheney's visit was pretty low-key. In fact, it was very low-key and the local media didn't pay it much attention, which came as a rather big surprise to some people as local news outlets usually offer splashy coverage of visits by both former and serving U.S. officials. And you were at the meeting, Ross... That's right. So, uh, uh, as you indicated, media coverage seems somewhat muted. Part of that is because there's so much else going on around the region, right? North Korea being the, the main focus of, of talks about uh, security issues around the region. In fact, North Korea was a significant part of the conversation at the Security Forum. Uh, but, but also, the, there was the ASEAN, China, uh, Russia, U.S. meeting attended by foreign ministers uh, from both ASEAN and major countries in, in Manila last week, as we discussed. Uh, there, there's the energy issue. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, and plus President Trump with his tweets on various topics. Uh, so there, there was a lot of things going on during the very brief time that Vice President Cheney was here, and that probably is, is what detracted from the media coverage. Had it been a time of a much slower news cycle, it might have gotten more coverage. I think we can also read into the mutedness of this event as kind of, you know, the U.S.'s stance on cross-strait relations, you know, kind of moving towards, back towards a bit of normalcy after, you know, the whole trump Tsai call and uh, the the results of the meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and Trump in Florida. So um, 
So Dick Cheney, as you know, an ardent supporter of the Taiwan Relations Act, um, reaffirming the status quo and the U.S. support for the status quo, I think, is very important. Um, and it kind of gives policymakers here a sense of normalcy. And that's all he did, wasn't it, of course? There was one small quote. Dick Cheney says the status quo is good. Of course, that was leaked by somebody in, in clear violation of the request uh, at the time of the speech, which I was at, uh, to keep this all off the record, not to record it. There was a DPP legislator who started to live stream Dick Cheney's uh, speech, and uh, he stopped after a few seconds. Uh, all of that actually is pretty bad, and, and, and let me briefly explain why. Uh, the next time Taiwan seeks to bring a dignitary of this stature to the island for a visit, they're, they're going to uh, might they might think twice because they see that uh, even when they attempt to keep their remarks off the record and within a closed session that uh, these requests are not respected unfortunately. I mean, do you think the government was sort of was secretly or sort of somewhere the, the government, the current DPP government was hoping that Dick Cheney would say something it could use? Well, it's a good question and if that was their intention it probably wasn't a good strategy simply because uh, Cheney uh, is retired. Uh, he uh, is supportive of vice of President Trump, uh, and uh, he was very clear about this during the election campaign season in the United States a year ago. Uh, he didn't endorse anyone in the primaries, and he said he would uh, endorse whoever the party nominates. And uh, I'm sure he much prefers Donald Trump as president than Hillary Clinton. Uh, but but he is not in government, and I don't say that in any way to detract from Vice President Cheney's stature, uh, but but he is not in government, and uh, you know, bringing someone who's a former anything always has the risk that critics will say, well, that's just a former. Uh, so you need to do a proper balancing of whether or not these kinds of persons uh, that, that Taiwan periodically brings here, not just from the United States, but Europe or Japan. And these, these visits cost a lot of money as well. And, and ultimately, the taxpayers are, are funding this. Uh, so there, there needs to be a proper balancing between whether or not the, the VIP visitor is still influential uh, and, and or whether or not they're controversial. Obviously, Vice President Cheney uh, is somewhat controversial. And I know, Gavin, had you been there, you might have thrown a shoe. Uh, but um, they, they, so depending on what the goals are, they, the government might not have achieved them. Well, I think um, back to the point where the DPP government, whether they wanted to get something from this, I think they're also realizing that, it, that they have to balance Taiwan's um, position right now in a, in a region that's facing a lot of uncertainty. And the last thing I think the Tsai administration wants to do is to put Taiwan on the map that way as as a potential uh, escalation in a, in a region that's already quite tense. Right, now we have to take a short break, but we'll be back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin this half of the show looking at judicial reform, namely plans by the government to establish a citizen-judge system and the ongoing failure to reach consensus over whether Taiwan should adopt a jury system. And I talked with Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners Law Firm about these issues. 
So, good evening, Michael. Good evening, Gavin. Now, the National Congress on Judicial Reform is debating numerous issues of, well, judicial reform, ranging from more transparency in the justice system, protection of victims' rights and new prisons to tackle overcrowding. And while all equally important aspects of the government's plans for reform within the island's judicial system, the move to a jury system and the introduction of so-called citizen judges are two of the most controversial issues. So, Michael, let's begin with citizen judges and how the government could integrate them into the judicial process. Well, the uh, proposal for citizen judges uh, is a system that's used in a number of countries that don't have jury systems. Uh, Germany, Finland, and most significantly, Japan. Uh, Taiwan's proposals so far for citizen judges are looking pretty similar to the ones in Japan, where you have, uh, in serious criminal cases, you have a panel of judges, uh, and they're joined, three judges, and they're joined by six lay judges, um, and they decide not only the guilt, but also the sentence of the defendant. And in order for a decision to be passed by the, this panel of judges, at least one of the professional judges has to join the decision. So it, it, it's certainly, in a, in a broad sense, more similar to a jury system because there's lay participation in it, but there are some pretty significant differences. Right. I mean, there are obviously concerns about this because of corruption. Well, there's corruption, and, and probably even more broadly speaking, um, the citizens of Taiwan have a very low level of trust in their judicial system. Something like 86, 87 percent of people say that they don't trust judges and prosecutors to make uh, just decisions. And certainly, uh, corruption is a concern, although I think it's important to understand that uh, while there was a, quite a bit of corruption in Taiwan's judicial system 20 or 30 years ago, most practitioners these days believe that it's very, very limited. Um, but certainly the public is concerned about it. The public's also concerned um, about the ability of judges to make good decisions in highly politicized cases. Uh, and also uh, they're concerned that uh, the judges don't make uh, decisions which are sort of in line with citizens' expectations, um, you know, in, in, in sex abuse cases or death penalty cases and that sort of thing. So there's a number of concerns that people have with Taiwan's judges, and corruption is one of them. And the general idea is that greater citizen participation in the process would make the process somewhat more democratic, but more importantly would help people understand the system better and, and have a better impression of the legal system. Right. I mean, obviously the government has said that it's going to seriously now consider the introduction of citizen judges, but do you see a time frame on this sooner or later? Well, the situation right now, as is, is always the case with these things, is, is, is actually very, is highly political at the moment, uh, and, and quite interesting. Uh, what is this proposal for citizen judges is coming from the Judicial Yuan, which is one of the five branches of the Republic of China government. And as the name would suggest, they're, uh, they're responsible for, for the judiciary. They're basically a bureaucracy which sits over the judges and organizes the legal system. And they traditionally have a very important say in any change, fundamental changes to Taiwan's legal system. They oppose a jury system. 
And they originally, under the Ma administration, came up with something which was a citizen observer system, where citizens would simply sit and not have a vote uh, on cases. That position has been pretty roundly rejected and is no longer on the table. They've been forced by public opinion and by President Tsai's um, campaign promises for judicial reform uh, to introduce more citizen participation. But they're digging in their heels pretty strongly against a outright jury system. On the other hand, you have fairly widespread support, uh, especially uh, from people on the left, uh, the Taiwan Association of University Professors, there's uh, the Judicial Reform Association, uh, there's a Taiwan Jury Association, there's a former constitutional grand justice who are all in favor of a jury system. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the uh, People's Solidarity Party is also in favor of uh, Huang Guacheng. Huang Guacheng has come out very strongly in favor and turns out to be an expert on, on jury systems. So, so, you know, kind of in the civil sphere, outside of government, there, there's a pretty strong push for an actual jury system. And they're, they're, tomorrow there's going to, or not tomorrow, but on Saturday there's going to be a meeting, a final meeting of the national Congress on Judicial Reform, presided over by President Tsai, who's supposed to come to some decisions about the numbers of the reforms that have been proposed, um, and both sides are lobbying hard for her or for the for the the final version of these reforms to make a clear decision between a jury system or a citizen judge system. So I think the important thing for listeners to understand is that. Uh, the citizen judge system is a proposal by the judicial branch of the government, which can be said to be fairly conservative. There is also a pretty lively proposal out there for a jury system, and it has not at all been decided which one it, it will be at this point. The judicial UN is supposed to come up with their draft of a bill by the end of the year, which would mean that the very earliest it could be passed would be probably by June of next year, and any system like this is going to take several years before they can actually implement it. So you're looking at 2019, 2020 before you would see your first uh, uh, citizen judges. It took Japan five years to do it, so I, I would expect it would take Japan and Taiwan a long time, too. Right. What, are the, what is the judicial UN's beef with a jury system? Well, I think it's just they, they fundamentally believe... Uh, they, I think it's correct to say that uh, they're, they don't trust ordinary citizens uh, to be able to make um, decisions the way that professionally ch- uh, trained judges do. And for since it's an English language uh, radio station and, and many of our uh, listeners are going to be from countries that do have juries, where at least in the United States where I'm from, uh, people traditionally have a are very proud of their juries and believe they're the best system available. But it is important to be aware that in most of the rest of the world, <clears throat> they don't have jury systems. And the concern is, is why would you let a bunch of ordinary people who are easily swayed by emotion and, and don't have, you know, don't sit every day in court and listen to evidence and weigh it? Why would you put the life or, you know, the liberty of someone uh, in the hands of someone who has no experience at this uh, at all? So it, it, it I think that, that their concern is similar to the concern that people have in many countries about uh, jury systems. Um, beyond that, 
they, they are also concerned, for example, there's been a severe reduction in death penalty cases in Taiwan over recent years, and I think that they're legitimately concerned that uh, lay judges would tend to push for the death penalty, given the very high support for the death penalty in Taiwan. And finally, and, and personally, my own view on this is that um, the, a jury system does not work uh, unless there are a whole other set of ancillary supporting systems. For example, the Anglo-American law has a very particular way of dealing with evidence. Um, it, it involves a very different role for the prosecutor. So there would need to be whole-scale changes in Taiwan's criminal justice procedure system in order to make a jury system work. And I, I think, understandably, uh, there are you know many of the Taiwanese lawyers at, at my office, for example, are skeptical about whether that can work or not. And they point to, uh, back in the early 2000s, Taiwan um, introduced something from Anglo-American law, which is cross-examination by the, in criminal cases, by the, the lawyer and the prosecution, uh, which is, of course, the subject of a lot of courtroom drama, instead of just having the defendant be questioned by the judge, which was the case before. And there were great hopes that it would greatly improve uh, the quality of the decisions and, and the evidence presented to the judges. And most people feel it's been a failure. Uh, it just it's it's kind of an alien graft to Taiwan's civil law system, which is not unique. It's the same as the ones in Germany and France and Japan. And it just has not flourished in Taiwan's environment. And so there's in the jury system is something you know much bigger. Uh, thing to try to do. And so I, I would be cautiously optimistic that it will work after a number of years, but I can see why people are concerned. That was me chatting with Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners Law Firm. Now, the Taipei University ad is a week away, and just as we thought we'd heard the last of organisational snafus, the words Chinese Taipei reared their controversial head, and the organising committee was once again on the defensive. This dispute centred on the wording used in the English language media guide. Now, although Taiwan competes at international sporting events under the title Chinese Taipei, the university ad guide referred to Taiwan or the Republic of China itself as Chinese Taipei. One section of the guide refers to Chinese Taipei as a special island, while another says the university ad will allow Chinese Taipei to be in the spotlight of the world. Awkward and absurd were two words to describe this. Now, the Taipei University Ad Committee said that the International University Sports Federation reviewed the material prior to publication and Taiwan had to be referred to as Chinese Taipei in the media guide. So did we see this coming, Ross? Absolutely. Uh, and the only thing we could say in the defense of the uh, organizing committee and Taipei city government officials is uh, a lot of them are not the ones who, were, who sought the bid, won the bid, which occurred under uh, previous mayor Hao Longming. That being said, uh, and we've talked about this before in the, in, in the last couple of years, uh, when the various issues about the facilities and the and buildings, et cetera, for the university ad came up, that America knew this was coming. And if you didn't want to do the university games, you shouldn't have run for mayor, or you should have been very enthusiastic about everything, the good and the bad. And part of the bad is that uh, the, the international sporting community requires Taiwan to use this name that most people in Taiwan don't like. Uh, so at this point in time, a few days before the opening ceremony, right, there's no excuse for 
poor language, poor poor English, um, and, and arguing about this really is a waste of time. Uh, so America could e- easily be out there saying, look, we're stuck with this. Let's just move on and have a great game instead of letting this situation get out of hand. Well, yeah, this is uh, very unfortunate, very absurd. Um, but, you know, I think everybody in Taiwan knows in their heart what their homeland is called. Um, they know that Chinese Taipei is a necessary evil in terms of, you know, the participation, uh, what, how we can participate in international events. Of course, this stings because uh, the university is being hosted in Taiwan. Uh, but I think for politicians, especially the new power party, to to really, you know, use this issue to galvanize the anger is a bit opportunistic. Um, I think it makes it masks bigger problems. Like uh, if we look at, you know, the ticket sales for for, for university is so low. You know why? Why is that? And um, this is something geared towards. Uh, this event is also geared towards young people. Uh, what about the young people's uh, well-being in Taiwan? Uh, uh, the youth problems, um, or 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 the, the statistics, uh, for instance, released by the Ministry of Finance, that say that uh, almost a third of low-income earners in Taiwan are young people aged 21 to 30. Shouldn't these be the problems that the NPP focuses on? Right. Of course, this is very predictable because I checked the other day in 2004, FIFA. FIFA came to FIFA, the soccer people. FIFA, one of the largest, most powerful sporting bodies in the world, as opposed to the International University Sports Federation. Slightly smaller. Anyway, in 2004, FIFA came to Taiwan and every publication, every booklet that FIFA put out about a soccer competition here used the words Chinese Taipei and nobody said boo. Well, again, it, it is the nomenclature that most, if not all, uh, international sporting federations require Taiwan to use as, as a matter of participation. So, again, if there was a societal consensus that th- this is uh, inherently offensive and unacceptable to people in Taiwan, uh, ideally, then there would have been a, a greater coalescing of opposition to bidding for the games. Because let's keep in mind uh, that these games will cost the taxpayers a lot of money. Both the city government and the central government are participating in the costs. And whether or not there'll be a a profitable return on this event is is unknown, but probably unlikely because these events usually are money losers for the governments that support them anywhere in the world. Uh, So again, if, if the public was so offended by this, then they should have at the time opposed bidding for the games. Right, and before we go, we're going to venture into the world of conspiracies. I haven't got the woo-woo-woo music, though, there, so never mind. And claims by a Chinese real estate developer by the name of Guo Wengui that Beijing monitored the private lives of Ma Ying-jeou, that's the former head of state and president, and his two daughters in order to pressure him over cross-state matters. Now, an allegation, well, Ma's office has described it as being unfounded and imagined. So, Ross, do you think that the Chinese Secret Service was secretly monitoring Ma Ying-jeou and his daughters before he became president in order to exert their power in some Manchurian candidate type of way over him. Well, of course, they were monitoring him just so, just the way they monitor uh, most prominent politicians in Taiwan. That's the job of, of uh, intelligence agencies, especially given the status of cross-strait relations and the various disputes between the two sides. Uh, so the fact that they might be monitoring politicians, and at the time, politicians who uh, had the potential to go on to even more senior roles, for example, 
Taipei mayor than the possibility at the time that he would become president. Uh, no surprise at all. And Go Wengoi has been periodically releasing uh, negative information about uh, Chinese leaders, their families, financial ties uh, between relatives of uh, prominent politicians and, and officials in China and, and business interests and deals that they win uh, because of their family connections, etc. And, and lately, he's been threatening to release information about politicians in Taiwan, both from the KMT and the DPP, who have relationships in China and or have received money from China and or uh, have been blackmailed by China. So this might be the first in a series because he he did threaten to start releasing Taiwan-specific information in the third quarter of this year, and now we've reached that time. Uh, So this will probably be the first in a series of revelations from Mr. Goh about uh, officials in Taiwan, and it's probably going to be bipartisan. So we should expect him to make some accusations about DPP politicians as well. Well, I mean, um, as Ross said, um, this guy has been releasing a bunch a web of allegations and and that's what they are mostly uh, allegations without very much uh, so far no 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 proof um, but um, they're really targeting uh, also uh, Xi Jinping's right-hand man uh, Wang Qishan. Um and the thing with um, Guo's actions are that he's using the foreign media you know the, the media outside of China to, to do this and um, and they don't have to be truthful allegations to be to be dangerous to these uh, to these uh, Chinese politicians. Do you think the local media, if he continues, like Ross said, to release information, do you think the local tittle tattle media will pick up on this and run big splashy headlines? Well, the local media in China has been in here, though, but oh, Taiwan. In Taiwan, of course, of course, yeah. Uh, Taiwan has a very vibrant and uh, active media, so that'll be... that'll. And, be. and also, let's keep in mind, it's not just uh, Taiwan or China, Hong Kong media that uh, have covered Guo Wengui's statements extensively. It's it's the entire overseas Chinese media as well. So in North America, where Mr. Guo is currently uh, based, uh, and he won't be returning to Hong Kong or China anytime soon. Uh, so the overseas Chinese media is also extensively covering this, and, and obviously they have a greater latitude to talk about these things and talk about Chinese leaders uh, than would the media in Hong Kong or China. So a lot of this uh, actually starts out in the United States and, and then makes its way back to Asia. Do you think he's believable, though? Um, I, I think the, the, the wonderful thing about this, not the wonderful thing, is the, the intriguing thing about this is that the believability is, is not important. It's the, the fact that he's doing that and that, that gives the, the Chinese uh, political elites, um, they're stuck in a, in a bind because if they, if they engage in this, then they have to, they have to, you know, they have to argue their way out of it. The, they, they, they mire the, themselves in these allegations. And if they don't say anything, you know, the whispers continue, you know. Well, also, we should keep in mind that as, as a fairly successful real estate developer and with other business interests as well, uh, the operating environment in China, almost by definition, um, requires uh, the uh, involvement, shall we say, in certain activities uh, that might not necessarily comply with the law. And, and we shouldn't be surprised if uh, permits were obtained through less than transparent processes, for example, uh, or land acquisitions uh, uh, were, took place under less than legal circumstances in China. And that, again, that's just the operating environment in China. And similarly, uh, to the extent that uh, his companies cooperated with other prominent large companies in China, 
uh, the many investigations have revealed in, in recent years the business ties that relatives of Chinese leaders have. Uh, so uh, when Mr. Go is saying that Ma was blackmailed to do China's bidding, that's probably unlikely. Is it likely that China was following uh, Ma and Joe, just like it monitors other politicians in Taiwan? Of course, that's highly likely. And they would, China would be negligent if it wasn't. Uh, but uh, when he says uh, that uh, there's uh, corrupt business activities involving the relatives of Chinese officials, uh, some of it won't be true, but there's probably an element of, of uh, truth to it as well. And that's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio by Ross Feingold. Good night. And Yuan Ming Chao. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.